Thank you, Josh. That was a surprise. And Bob, thank you for the great joy of being here uh, after a few very different years. It is quite the joy to be again at a Worship God conference. I love these conferences, not only because Bob is one of my closest friends, but because of the kind of people who come to Worship God conferences, people who love God, people who love to express their affections for God, people who desire to lead others in responding to God. There's perhaps no, except our church, or churches that we're part of, there's probably no less apathetic a gathering that I've served in than those at Worship God conferences, which makes it an honor to be here, makes it an honor to sing with you and learn with you and particularly to serve you with God's word. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus 33, and please, when you've turned there, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we come remarkably at your invitation. We don't initiate our relationship with you. We can't preserve our relationship with you. We are dependent upon you for life and forgiveness and for everything. So, Lord, we come through your Son. And because of what Christ has done, we can come boldly before the throne of grace, the last place in the universe we should be bold. But we can come and we can ask you, as we read the prayer earlier, ask that you would do more than we can ask or imagine. Lord, we can, we can imagine many things we would want you to do tonight. We can imagine things in our lives we'd love you to speak to. We can imagine uh, ways in which we would want our vision of you expanded in our hearts for you, intensified, Lord. There, there's so many things we would love to see. We're, we're all here. We have things at home that we leave. We have heartaches. We have challenges. We have questions, things we'd love for you to do, Lord. You are the God who does more than we can ask or imagine. So, Lord, we pray you would do that tonight for your glory and for the good of these dear folks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, just over two years ago, our, it was 2020, our family celebrated July the 4th by watching the just released film version of Lin-Manuel Miranda's Broadway phenomenon, Hamilton, an American musical. As you're, you're at a worship conference, a lot of musical people here, you probably know this, but his musical, which was inspired by the best-selling biography by Ron Chernow, did something remarkable it transformed one of our most forgotten founding fathers, a, a dead white male, into a pop culture icon. But at the end of the musical, after all of the adventure and all of the intrigue of Hamilton's life, if you know the soundtrack, you know that the final song asks a searching question. Do you remember what it was? Who tells your story? In the song, Hamilton's sister-in-law, Angelica, makes the point that he was the only founding father who didn't live long enough to have his story told. Who keeps your flame, as the lyrics go? Who tells your story after you're gone? Who makes sure that you will be remembered, that your character, that your story will be properly preserved? Thanks to Chernow and Miranda, 
Hamilton's reputation among the founders has been restored. His story is no longer forgotten. The history of men like that, the history of nations, it's certainly important to remember and to understand And in our own nation, there's actually now a struggle as to who will tell that story and what that story will be. There's something far more significant than the story of any nation, than the story of any founder, than the story of any human being. Who tells God's story? In our pluralistic society with countless competing truth claims, Who tells the true story? Who tells God's story? And for a worship conference and the massive responsibility that falls to those who would lead God's people in worship, few things are more important of all that goes into leading worship, which you participate in, singing and composing and playing, underlying and informing it all is God's story, who he is and what he has done and how we can know him, how we are to relate to him. At its most fundamental level, true worship is simply an appropriate response to God as he has revealed himself to be. That's all worship is. God reveals, we appropriately respond, which is, why, which is one reason I am so excited, so grateful for Worship God and for Bob's leadership. Because Worship God, as a worship conference, it's less about worship than about the God we worship. And we are forever blessed that God did not leave his story to chance to speculation, to intuition, or the subjective interpretation by others. God told his own story. He entered time-space reality, and he revealed himself to people that they might encounter him, that they might know him, that they might worship him, that they might pass on his story. All of Scripture tells that story. But there is a particular text here in the book of Exodus, like no other text in the Old Testament, that tells God's story. In fact, where God tells his own story. Now, if you know the book of Exodus, you know it is an, it's an incredible book. It's an exhilarating book. We see God revealing himself at numerous times in manifold ways throughout this book. But in chapter 34, at at the pinnacle of this revelation, we find a divine disclosure that surpasses all others. Here in chapter 34 is one of the most comprehensive, concentrated revelations of God's character in the entire Old Testament. It's the closest thing to a list of attributes of God in the entire Old Testament. If you wanted one passage in the whole Old Testament that answers the question, who is God, I think this is your passage. And as those who help lead God's people in worship, and more importantly, as those who are called to be worshipers, as we all are in all of our lives, we won't know him accurately, and therefore we will not respond to him appropriately without understanding his glorious, exalted nature, his personal character as revealed in this passage. Here, God tells his own story, and it's our great privilege to listen in. That's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. Now, before we look at the text, it's vital to know where this text comes in the story. We will not understand this revelation of God without grasping the dramatic moment in which this passage arrives. If you've read this book, you know that the story of Exodus proceeds really from one glorious moment to another, right? God hears the people's 
cry. He reveals himself to Moses and he drafts Moses to go to Egypt. He strikes Egypt with plagues. He parts the Red Sea for his people to escape. And then he closes it on the heads of the Egyptians. Then he gathers, all of that is prelude to gathering his people together at Sinai, revealing his glory on the mountain. He makes a covenant with this people. Out of all the peoples on the earth. He, he forges out of this motley crew of tribes and clans, he forges them into a nation, a people for his very own possession. Then he gives them his very law that reveals his character and shows them what life is meant to be like, what life is created to be like when you live in harmony with the one who made you. Then... Exodus 25, he instructs them to build a tabernacle so God could do what he had never done before, what no other God had ever done before. Make me a tent, Exodus 25, 8, that I may dwell with you. It's the first time ever. God met with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but God didn't live in Eden. He would come walking there in the cool of the day. So you see what's happening. God moving, triumph everywhere until chapter 32 where all of this glorious progress hits a wall, an unthinkable catastrophe that almost blows up the entire program of God. You remember what that was? The golden calf, and everyone should groan. Immediately after sealing this covenant with God, proclaiming, We will be faithful, Israel rejected their God. It just gives you, when you're reading, it just gives you whiplash. How did this happen so quickly? They, then they break the first three commandments given by God in chapter 20. They, they ascribe their salvation to a, to a bull God, and they place their trust in this God to lead them. And so what have they done? They have perverted the revelation of God. They have redefined their conception of God. They, they've pledged themselves to a God of their own making. It's the story of humanity. And sadly, it's the story of much of what passes under the name of worship. And as a result, they forfeited the greatest gift any people had ever been given, the very the very presence, the loving, revealing, saving, providing, protecting presence of God. So now a giant question mark hangs over God's plans for this nation. Remember what happens next. The next two chapters are a roller coaster. Moses intercedes for the people. God mercifully spares them. But then, he, and he says, I'm going to send you on to the promised land. Grace, right? But I'm not going with you. Despair, because a holy God cannot dwell among an unholy people. So Moses intercedes again, and God extends grace yet again, assuring Moses that he will, after all, yes, he will accompany the people to the promised land. Besides, despite all their, all their provocations, God will not renounce Israel. He will not abandon his people. They will remain his treasured possession. And this prompts Moses to make a request. Exodus chapter 33, just before the text we will look at. Exodus 33, we'll look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. 
No more audacious requests in all of Scripture. He, he had see, Think about it. He had seen the burning bush. He had entered the cloud of glory on Sinai. But now it appears, it appears from verse 20, that he wants to see God's face. He desired a, a, more, a, a more direct experience, a, a full unveiling of the radiance and splendor of God. Question, why this? Why now? Well, I think what happens here is that God's lavish displays of mercy kindle something in Moses. They incite in him a hunger to know this God more deeply and more fully. Who, who is this God who would show such favor and grace to such a stiff-necked people in the face of such, such flagrant rebellion? John Piper makes this same connection when he writes this, what was clearly at the heart of Moses' request was a longing to know the glory of God's character which flowed from the mercy that he had just been promised. So there's a little hinge at this point and God will grant this request with limitations. And so he tells Moses in verse 20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. So God then, remember the story, he arranges a, a safe seat for this moment. Look at verse 22. Behold, verse 21, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. See with me? The stage is set for this decisive moment. Here is where God is going to tell his own story. And here is our text for this evening, Exodus 34 verses 1 to 9. Now, we, can, we, we will try to capture this, this Everest of revelation under three simple headings, if you're taking notes. Very simply, preparation, revelation, and response. So first, let's look at the preparation. Look with me at chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses... Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the mountain to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain." So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now, we don't want to rush by these opening verses to get to the revelation. They are necessary for the revelation, and they hint at the nature and the purpose of the revelation. What is the first thing Moses must do? Prepare tablets of stone for a new edition of the Ten Commandments. Moses, if you remember, had smashed in anger the first tablets, which God made when he saw the people's idolatry. We don't know exactly why Moses is going to make these. Perhaps these man-made tablets are a subtle reminder of that, as God says, which you broke. Maybe it's a reminder of Israel's sin. What's important is that, once again, God is going to do the writing. He will inscribe his law on the tablets, the, this revelation of his character and Israel's call to live life in his presence, in the presence of God for the glory, for his glory among the nations. In other words, behind the tablets, behind these instructions is good news. 
Behind the rock and the chisel is confirmation. The covenant that Israel had violated, God is renewing. He still desires a relationship with them. He still wants them to have the joy of living in his presence and walking in his ways and experiencing his blessing. Can, can you imagine Moses' joy in hearing this, in receiving this dirty task? Let's fix the tablets, Moses. Let's do this again. That's just joy. And this is critical for the coming revelation. What God is going to reveal to Moses is not codified behavioral standards merely. It's not abstract data. It's not information from a textbook. It is a revelation of himself given to those that he has saved and claimed for his own and who should respond by loving him and trusting him and living for him on his terms. In other words, it's, it's a revelation designed for relationships. That's why God reveals himself to us in the first place. That's why God gave us our Bibles in the first place. As J.I. Packer wrote in his wonderful book, God Has Spoken, God reveals himself to us to make friends with us. The revelation is for friendship. It's for relationship. And the rest of the instructions point to this. The whole, if you were to compare this with chapter 19, the whole scene evokes what we saw in chapter 19 at the giving of the, at the first establishment at the covenant. Moses is to climb the mountain in the morning. No one is to accompany him. No man, no one, man or beast, is to touch the mountain. It, it's an exhilarating day, but it's also a solemn day. Like you see over and over in this rich book, the whole scene whispers holiness. Whatever God is about to reveal, nothing will diminish what has been clear throughout the book. The true God is a holy God. Like a, like a city, God passes over looking for blood on doorposts. like Sinai before with lightning and thunder and cloud, like the holy of holies in the tabernacle where, where God is, it's holy. And when it's holy, it's dangerous. And one, not, one dare not approach such holiness, such all-powerful, all-consuming godness, carelessly or casually, or without an invitation. Those are the preparations and the atmosphere for this moment to which everything has been building. So after Moses ascends Mount Sinai, God, as it were, descends to reveal himself to Moses. And so we see the second part of our text, we've seen preparation. Number two is revelation. One can only imagine what Moses is feeling at this moment. No doubt, some mixture of holy fear. Will I survive this? <laughs> An anticipation? He's asked God to show him his glory, and God says, I'm not going to see my face, but I'm going to pass by you. I mean, this is, this, is his, <laughs> this is his walk on the moon moment. It, it just doesn't get bigger than this. What will he see that no human being ha has ever seen? This side of the garden, perhaps. And we got a preview of this in verse 33. Just look up again at verse 18, or 
when he says, show me your glory, and what does God say? I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So already we get a hint. Moses asks to see the glory of God, and God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. He's, he's about to have an encounter, not, not apparently with, with God's power or with God's majesty or with, with God's awesomeness, but his goodness. Mo- Moses may not get a, a, a full-on exposure to, to, I don't know, transcendent luminosity, but he will receive more than he's ever experienced before. A personal disclosure of God's character. So already we, we learn something. We gain a glimpse into God's transcendent glory. How do finite creatures like us, how do finite creatures like us conceive of divine glory? How do we speak of the, the ineffable? His glory is his goodness. His exalted nature is displayed in how he relates to people. And Moses and we are about to learn more of what that means. The revelation begins like many other visitations of God. He descends in a cloud, but immediately the language points to the uniqueness, the the heightened intimacy of this revelation. Chapter 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. It just makes you tremble. God descends and stands with him there. I mean, he's, he's right there. He's with him. Mercifully, it appears, shielding him with his hand, lest, lest he receive a lethal dose of divine glory. So God is here. And then he speaks. Verse 5. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and, or passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. So he proclaims, and you know in your your Bibles, when you see Lord and it's in all capital letters, you know that behind that, is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. We pronounce it, we don't know how it was pronounced, Yahweh, his personal name. We can't go back to chapter 3, but I would encourage you to go back to chapter 3 and study that chapter. This is not a moniker. This is not a label. This is a name that revealed God's Character. This, this is the name that was a promise, a promise of God's presence with his people and his actions for his people. The Lord, the Lord, perhaps translated, the Lord, he is the Lord, must have sent, I don't know, chills, Flashbacks. I've heard this before, Moses might have thought, but this, this is bigger. God is reiterating that promise, which is breathtaking, given chapter 32. Never forget, this comes after chapter 32. So what is he saying when he announces? I mean, Moses knows it's God. Why does, what is he saying when he says, the Lord, the Lord... I think he's saying, I am still God with my people. 
God for my people. I am still the present one and present to save. That's what's in that name. He is present with his people and present to save. And now God will unfold the significance of that promise with an exposition of the name. That's what we see here. Now God tells his own story, and he does so by disclosing seven attributes that describe his, his very nature, his very character, like a kaleidoscope that displays the, the manifold goodness of God. And, and, and note this, he says nothing about his power, he says nothing about his perfections, it, it, it's all about how he relates to others. Victor Hamilton, a commentator, makes this point when he writes this. Everything the Lord says autobiographically is something that God is or does for the benefit of others, especially his chosen people. And these two verses, verses 6 and 7, are going to echo throughout history. They, they become part of the heritage of Israel. They will shape the very consciousness of the nation. They, they will be quoted and echoed and alluded to over and over throughout the Old Testament. We heard it echoed in songs that we sing tonight. They become shorthand for Israel's conception of God. This will become Israel's answer to the question, who is God? So, who is God? What's he like? The first two descriptors are related. Look with me at verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. They both modify God there. So they go together and they typically come together in the Old Testament. Is that the first thing you would have expected? What's God like? Omnipotent, omnipresent, simple, immutable. Merciful, gracious. And he shared it for these people. The people who had just rejected him for a golden calf. God is this for these people? Yes, for just such people. And these two words are, are just brimming with significance. The first He's first merciful. I often you see it translated compassionate. And I like that translation because there, there is feeling in this word. This word gives a glimpse into the emotional nature of God. It, 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 it's related actually to the word for womb. So it speaks of a, a tenderness of concern and sympathy. It's what a mother feels for a child, deeply feeling its weakness and need, and a heart welling up in love for a child. When we received our first son, who was adopted 21 years ago, we were at the hospital with his birth mom. My wife had the joy of being in the room I was outside the room pacing, crying, praying. And like every parent here, I'm sure, I, I will never forget, I wasn't expecting this, as we were adopting him, but I'll never forget the moment they put him in my arms. It was like magic. I, I was transformed. 
I, I just had this immediate, I can only call, a ferocious compassion for this baby, an unexpected, instantaneous love that, that just seemed to come from somewhere deep. I, I, I really would, at that moment, I would protect this, this child with my life. Don't come near. That's how I felt. It, it transformed the way I viewed God. That's, that's God's heart for his people. It, that's what David says exactly in Psalm 103.13. As a father shows compassion, same word, as a father shows compassion for, to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Yesterday, <laughs> my first grandson, who was born February 22nd, at 26 weeks, one pound, two ounces, spent the last five months in the NICU fighting for his life, three surgeries, but yesterday, he came home. to my house where my son and his wife live. Again, the, it, but it, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about preaching this and it just happened again, this precious, he's still tiny, this precious, frail little boy and I just, your heart just aches with compassion. Do you think of God in that way? How he looks at you, how he looks at your spouse, how it'll how change your marriage, how he looks at your church. Tender concern, sensitive to your needs, compassionate about your weaknesses. As Bob was saying earlier, there's people who are here, there's got to be people who are here coming from, from a wilderness. No one feels it, what you're feeling, like, like this God. He's also, verse 6, gracious. This describes... God's heart towards people in need, especially those who don't deserve it. He's gracious. When, when, you, when you cry out to him, he doesn't turn a cold shoulder to you. He, he is not, this gets at it, he is not stingy with his help. He, he, he's leaning forward to help with, with, with a disposition, and this is also in the word typically, with a disposition to go beyond what's expected. I might put this, God is eagerly and undeservedly generous. So imagine God's, imagine God's posture when you pray. Is he, is, is he disinterested? Is he, is he distracted? Is, is he needed to be, needing to be cajoled into listening, into answering? Or is he, as Isaiah puts it in Isaiah chapter 30, he longs to be, same word, he longs to be gracious to you. Call out to me, he says, I'm just, I just, I'll do more. I'll do more than you ask. I'll do more than you think. I care more than you imagine. He's gracious. Third, he is, verse six again, Slow to anger. Maybe if you've got a seminary student in here, you've had Hebrew, you, you'll, you'll know this. You know that the word knows is used figuratively to mean anger. And so this is literally, God is long of nose, which speaks not of his face, but his forbearance. It's, it's the opposite of short-tempered. 
God, God is so unlike like us. He's so unlike me. He, he's not on edge. He, he, he's not sitting there with a, with a hair trigger of a, a temper standing over you, just watching for a mistake, just, just waiting to fly off the handle, just waiting to explode. His reflex is not anger. It's forbearance. It's He's patient. He gives time for conviction and repentance. And when he does act against evil, and and he will, it's never reactionary or impulsive or or volatile. It's careful. It's considered. It's wise. Totally. I was thinking about this this afternoon. So convicted. Convicted because I just so often insult God by thinking of him as just the opposite. Making him into my own image. Oh, he must, he must be furious now. He must be done with me now. He probably needs some space away from me now. Sure, Jeff, confess the same sin, 30th time, you loser. It's not like that. He doesn't, he doesn't condone my sin, but his heart toward me doesn't change because of my sin. God underlines the next two attributes, just just like he's long in forbearance, he, verse 6b, he abounds in something. He's great in two things, steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, here is one of the great word pairs in the whole Bible, some 20 plus Times these words combine usually to describe the Lord and all because of this verse, this divine disclosure. So this is massive. So if God is slow to anger, what is, what is he great in? What does he excel in? Well, the first thing that he abounds in is one of the most important words in your Bible. In English, it's two words. In the original, it's one Steadfast love. We don't have an equivalent in English. Miles Coverdale, 400 years ago, coined a term, loving kindness, to try to capture it. It's a covenant word. It's used of people bound in a relationship. When, when used of God, it's his, his unobligated loyalty to keep his promises to his people. His devoted solidarity to those he saves. The way I like to call it, his, it's his pledged love. He's pledged it. He's guaranteed it. He's loyal to it. He's never withdrawing it. Hundreds of pages have been written on this word. It always speaks of a a covenanted relationship, typically speaking of the greater, the attitude of the greater one in the covenant to the lesser, who shows favor to the lesser, who's not obligated to do it, and who does so mercifully. So to to try try to get your arms around it, I'll say this, it's God's committed, loyal, freely given, undeserved, grab hold of you and not let you go, love. The idea is so important that God inspired an entire psalm Psalm 136, which later Jewish tradition labeled the great Hallel, the great praise, to link, and that psalm links 
all of God's actions in creation and redemption to this one abiding reality of his character. All 26 verses resound with this refrain, for his, what does it say? His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love has no end. His commitment to do you good is forever. And the second thing God abounds in that goes along with this is his faithfulness. This, this speaks of God's dependability. And it, it's used in various ways. The idea behind it, typically though, is that of firmness. Firmness, solidity, dependability. Strong arms are called faithful arms. Strong pillars that hold up a building are called faithful pillars. So God is, God is faithful. God is firm. The Puritans used to speak of, they used to use the language of leaning, leaning on God. He, he's just, he's solid. You can lean on him. You can, you can put all your weight on him and all the weight of your life on him. He's, he's firm. He's unswervingly reliable. He can be depended upon always to be who he is and to do what he says he will do. He always tells the truth. He always keeps his promises. He can always be counted on. He always comes through. What a God. These two words, I mean, they're... This is just theological dynamite. And God abounds in them. In fact, he emphasizes their constancy in verse 7 by repeating steadfast love. And, and note the words, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Keeping, that's a, that's a guard word. He keeps steadfast love. He, he guards it. He preserves it. He protects it. He keeps it in force. Extending it, as he says, to thousands. Like a tsunami, it just spreads. It just rolls through generations, sweeping up more and more into his bonds of love. If you are his through Christ, know this, God Binds himself to his people. He binds himself to you. He's committed to you. He's present with you to extend mercy and grace. And when we sin, verse 7, the next attribute, he forgives. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And I love the word for forgive there. It's wonderful. It's a very common word. It just, just means to lift something or to carry it or to bear it. it, it it's, what, it's what God does with repentant sin. He doesn't hold it over our heads. He doesn't define us by it. He, he doesn't rub our faces in it. He lifts it. He lifts it off our shoulders and he bears it away. And to convince us of this and to emphasize this, God casts his net wide to show the extravagance of his forgiveness. He searches the he searches the lexicon. He, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He just piles up the words to show that he forgives the whole spectrum of sins, from false to, to willful disobedience to, to outright rebellion. The, the point, there's nothing beyond the reach of God's grace. No type of sin, no degree of sin that's beyond God's power or willingness forgive. We're meant, we're meant to feel the weight of that repetition, or better, we're, we're meant to feel the relief of that repetition. Verse 
whatever sin has come to your mind, yet you can't shake that creates guilt that causes you to sing less passionately, to be slow to come to God in prayer. No Christian here who comes humbly to Jesus dare disqualify themselves from this forgiveness. Self-righteousness and Satan both tempt us to despair and tell us of the guilt within, which is why we can, why we must sing boldly, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Finally, Lest God's character be misunderstood or flippantly presumed upon, God strikes a sober note at the end of verse 7. Who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You might think, I wish we'd have stopped after six. But no, you don't. Because that kind of God would not be worth worshiping. A God who indulges sin? Really? A God who has no standards of righteousness? A God who doesn't care about injustice? A God who's content to let sin forever mar his creation? God who watches nations try to roll over other nations. And he doesn't care? No. Not this God. The, the unrepentant sinner will find no safety here. And there may well be consequences for sin that persist. Three or four generations even. But don't miss the emphasis. You see the contrast? Visiting iniquity third and fourth generations, but his forgiveness, it goes to thousand generations. There is sobriety here. There, there, sin is serious. This, this is a, a necessary part of God's character, a, a necessary qualification, but the overwhelming emphasis in this revelation is grace. In fact, the text contains what one theologian calls a theology of the grace of God unsurpassed in the Old Testament. Well, that's God's own story. And unlike our culture, unlike celebrities, unlike social media influencers, whatever that is, he, he, he's not strutting around. He's not showing off. There's nothing here about power or perfections. There's nothing here about what Moses, do you notice? Nothing here about what Moses saw. There's no, no theophanic fireworks. It was all about what Moses heard. What he heard was all about who God is for his people and what he does for his people. Don't misunderstand this. This was not less than Moses asked for. It was actually more. Moses wanted reassurance 
for God's promise, yes. He wanted a deeper experience of God through an experience, yes. God instead disclosed to Moses a deeper, more profound grasp of God's character and his heart for his people. So Moses does not come away disappointed. Moses knows God's better, knows God better than he ever has. And we see his response in the final section of our text with our third point. Number three, Moses' response. His first response in verse eight illustrates the effect upon a worshiper of grasping the character of God. And Moses, verse eight, quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He's overwhelmed. He's He's had encounters with divine glory before, but he's never known God like this. We don't know what God's back looked like. I I suppose a lesser revelation of divine radiance that, that, that was survivable. But the writer, Moses, says nothing about the backside of God, nothing about what he saw. It is the majesty of God's mercy and grace to sinners that overwhelmed Moses. And then he does something unexpected. His second response, he prays again for Israel, verse 9. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Requests he's made before that God would accompany them, that God would forgive them, that God would take them as his own. Why is he saying it again? Well, now he's encountered God in his grace and his mercy. And out of that revelation, what does he do? He prays. In God's word, he has a rock-solid foundation for his prayers. He has reasons for hope. He has fuel for intercession And every assurance that this covenant, shattered by rebellion, can now be renewed by grace. That's what a revelation of God's character, his his multidimensional goodness, produces. Moses exemplifies it for us. When we grasp that goodness, greatness and grace, holiness and mercy, unending loyalty and faithfulness, it produces humble worship. We see ourselves as sinners, unworthy of such a God to whom we owe everything. But it also produces faith. We see not only ourselves in need, but we see a God merciful and gracious, freely offering himself in forgiveness and faithfulness to all who will come to him for mercy. Now, this would be the high point of God's revelation for the next millennia and a half, guiding Israel, comforting Israel, warning Israel, assuring Israel. But it's not, it's not the final revelation. Because God's purposes for his people were not yet complete. Israel's, think about the rest of your Old Testament. Israel's own history of unfaithfulness raised questions about God's ability to extend grace and forgive if he indeed does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's the tension in this text. Did you notice it? He's a gracious, merciful, forgiving God, but he's also a holy and just God, and he must punish sin if he really is God, if he's a righteous God, if he's a God worth worshiping. Moses knew God was forgiving. He had a promise that God would forgive sin, but he didn't fully know how. So, as salvation history unfolded, God gave a greater revelation of himself. 
not simply in an announcement, but a person. The person of Jesus Christ. The glory that Moses asked to see, the glory that he heard proclaimed in Exodus 34, would one day come personally. That's what the Apostle John writes in his gospel. Do you remember the opening words? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we, he writes breathtaking words in John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, set up his tent among us, and we have seen, what? We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's John's claim? The glory that Moses wanted to see, it's here in the person of Jesus Christ. The revelation of God's goodness that Moses encountered, it's now here, revealed fully in the person of Christ. John makes this clear when he explains just what the glory looked at, looked like. Did you, did you notice? Not, not, we saw his glory, not, not a blazing fire, not, not a cloud, not, not Jesus sort of radiating light. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full, abounding, full of grace and truth. Does grace and truth ring a bell? That's John's rendering of steadfast love and faithfulness. In Jesus, he encountered, you and I encounter God's own steadfast love and faithfulness, his gracious, loyal, merciful, relentless love that he shows his own, his utter reliability to keep his promises. And it's that revelation that resolves the tension of Exodus 34. The gospel resolves the tension in Exodus 34. For Jesus came not only to reveal God's heart, but to satisfy his justice and to secure his people's redemption. The greatest, the fullest, the most, the most efficacious display of God's steadfast love and faithfulness was not on the mountain, it was not in a vision, but on the cross, where God did indeed visit our sins, not on us, not on our children, but on his very own son. God's relentless commitment to gain a people for himself, his own inheritance, sons and daughters who would know him and love him and enjoy him forever. That required not merely feelings of love, not merely compassion. That required a payment for sin, a sacrifice that would reconcile God with rebellious sinners like those in Exodus 32, like those seated, seating in this room. That happened on the cross, the ultimate display of grace and truth. Aren't you glad? So, if we were to pose the question, what is God like? God's final answer would be, look at Jesus Christ. For in him, the very character of God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. It's all on full and personal and glorious display in Jesus Christ. In the gospel, you and I, brothers and sisters, we have the privilege of beholding something Moses never did. We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And because of that display, all of the goodness of God toward his people 
is ours. Everything we see in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, everything we read, Jesus will be to you. Jesus will be for you. I want to close really briefly by saying what so many of you who serve your churches in corporate worship, thank you for what you do. And your participation in this conference speaks, speaks volumes about your passion and your priorities in worshiping God personally and serving church faithfully. But as you do, just would want to remind you and remind all of us what is most important in that worship and in that serving is not what so often captures our attention. It can even capture our heart. It's not your gifting. It's not your skill. It's not your performance. However well motivated, it is your true experienced knowledge of God, your relationship with God, your daily pursuit of God, informed by all Jesus did to fulfill Exodus 34. Of all that goes into leading worship, singing, composing, playing, leading, underlying it all, informing it all, is the glory of God displayed in His Son, Jesus Christ. And you, and I know you know this, I don't think you'd be here, you will serve your church's best and bring true glory to God when you faithfully and consistently draw their attention to the glory of God in Christ. One of the greatest worship leaders in all time, of all time, in perhaps his greatest song, echoed the very words of Exodus 34 when he penned these lines. Listen to this lyric. Surely goodness and steadfast love shall follow me, pursue me, chase me, hunt me down all the days of my life. It was the character of God, his goodness, his faithfulness, his steadfast love that informed David's life, his worship, his psalm writing. And we have every advantage over David. For we have come to know David's far greater son. And because of him, we will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life. Let's pray.